Welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and I'm excited to talk to our guest today, Dr. Jada Watson. Jada Watson is an assistant professor of digital humanities in the School of Information Studies at the University of Ottawa. She is also the coordinator of digital humanities programs in the Faculty of Arts and the principal investigator of the Song Data Project. Her research aims to harness the potential of popular music industry data to show how popular music genres form develop and change over time, focusing on issues of representation and of equity, diversity, and inclusion in country music. Her current projects concentrate on interpreting the big data emerging from industry efforts to track radio streams and sales and ultimately capture revenue and to control the process of recognition, awards, and canonizations in archives, museums, halls of fame, and in the current regulatory and media environment. Her research has fueled industry debates and has been a feature in a number of national and international publications, including the New York Times, Rolling Stone Country, Billboard, and La Presse, and has been featured in media such as CBC's The National and Full Frontal with Samantha B. In 2019, her research was cited as a major source in a report submitted to the U.S. Federal Communication Commission in response to the National Association of Broadcasters' proposal to deregulate radio, as well as in Grammy Recording Academy report on inclusion and diversity in the music industry. Research from the Song Data Projects has been published in many journals, and she is the co-editor of a collection of essays on country music in the 21st century for Cambridge University Press, forthcoming this December. In June 2022, she was awarded the Outstanding Early Career Award from the Canadian Society for Digital Humanities. Welcome, Jada. It's so good to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. The pleasure is all mine. I always like to start with the origin story. You are are a music researcher in the field of digital humanities. Can you tell us how you came to this field of research? Did it start as you were a lover of music, you're a musician, and then it sort of morphed? Or how did that start? Gosh, that's a really great question. I've been playing music my whole life, really. I started piano, probably older than most kids. I started at nine. And I actually quit piano when I was 10. But (laughs) sorry, not 10, 12. So I quit when I was 12. But I'd also been taking music at, at my elementary school. I was very lucky in the town where I grew up that we had access to instruments. So I was playing clarinet and saxophone so I could read music. We did theory all the time. I just didn't have a teacher that I really connected with for piano. And I was more interested in pop music, I would say, in terms of what I was playing. So my mom would buy me like those Hal Leonard piano reduction books or, you know, I I had this thing that it didn't hit me until about three years ago that actually is quite foundational for me is I used I used to tape the radio. I used to tape like the weekly top 40 countdown. One, it was a way of getting the songs before I could actually, you know, buy the record. I mean, I was an elementary and then high school student. I didn't have a lot of money, but it was also the way that I taught myself to play some songs. Mm -hmm. So I would teach myself some of the ballads, not the up-tempo stuff based on these really terrible cassette recordings that I made of the top 40 (laughs) countdown. I stayed with music all through high school and then ultimately decided to go to college for piano performance, which probably sounds weird because I just said that I didn't play classical music. I really didn't. I went to Cambrian College in Sudbury, Ontario, I think because I had a strong theory background and played a variety of woodwind instruments and just played piano on my own that my teacher saw something. And in the three years at Cambrian, I went from like a grade six level to AR and loved it. It was like three years of just nothing but like six hours a day of piano. 
And then to cut the rest of it out, <laughs> I did my undergrad uh, master's and PhD in musicology. I was always, even back in college, more drawn to the history of music and shifted from an interest in Soviet classical to popular music. And it was really in the work on popular music that the digital became a thing. Even then, I didn't know what digital humanities was. I worked with Lori Burns a lot. She's long been a mentor. And we, we did a lot of work on music video and analyzing vocal gestures through different technological tools. And it wasn't until I was really done my dissertation that I realized there was this whole field of digital humanities and that I was already like a, mem a member of it yeah. <laughs> uh, just by virtue of what I did as a scholar, but completely disconnected from the actual sort of group of digital humanists in Canada. And so when I started teaching at the University of Ottawa, I started teaching in digital humanities and really have been very warmly embraced by the DH community within Canada. Canada. And I'd say many of us are like that, unless you had a supervisor who is very much part of the digital humanities community in Canada. There are a lot of people just like me who are always doing the digital without actually being, you know, part of it. I'm just very fortunate now at University of Ottawa that I've been able to become an actual, like a participating member of the Canadian community. Yeah. I want to pick up on one thing you said earlier and that you used to tape the top 40 songs on the radio because that just is such a foreshadowing of what you were going to do in your career. And I just think that's, that is so neat that that was something that sort of was the spark. Yeah. And it's so funny that it didn't really dawn on me until, you know, a few years into what I do now. But um, there's a song by Miranda Lambert called Automatic. And I think it came out in 2010, if memory serves. And she has this line about like taping the countdown because a song hadn't come out yet. And that song always resonated with me for those reasons. <laughs> but I think quite often, you know, your research develops in a way that either very clearly stems from what you sort of did as a child, mm -hmm. or you meander off in a certain area and then come back and it takes a while to realize, oh, wow, there were some big moments in my youth that actually led to this. I mean, I lived in the country. Radio was my world. It wasn't necessarily country format radio, but I loved country artists. The artists that I listened to were the women that crossed over onto pop radio. And so I grew up listening obsessively to radio, car trips, in my room, all over the place. And so yeah, now what I do makes complete sense. But there was a period where I think it was hard for me to conceptualize why this shift felt so important to me because I'd mm -hmm. spent so much time working on like music video and geographic and environmental issues in popular music. Now it just feels like I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. That's awesome. You said you're a musicologist, you work with data pretty much all the time. Can you let us know what it is when people are talking about big data and why does that matter? And how do you use data to inform your research? Yeah, big data is the term that we use to describe data that is big in size, big in variety, that is constantly evolving. And it's the data that's sort of all around us in really every capacity. And there's a variety of ways of working with it. But quite often, we think of big data as a consumer tool. It's something that is often used within the world as a way of understanding users. Mm -hmm. um, so predictive analytics as a way of determining what somebody might need to buy, or the recommender systems that sit underneath all of our digital service providers from like Spotify to Amazon, 
to anything that's going to be using people's data as a way of generating insights about people to then push back recommendations to them is sort of one of the easiest ways to think about it. But big data, of course, can be health data, it can be other forms of economic data, it can be social data. And of course, like anything, data is reflective of the systems in which we live. So data is treated as benign and equitable and neutral as like just this representation of human activity. But the deeper we get into big data research, in every field, we're really poking at what that means and really grappling with this notion that this data is a reflection of our society. So it's a reflection of the oppressive systems in which we live. So all of this data is necessarily built on foundations of structural racism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, so many, so many different forms of oppression. And so now, when we're poking at these systems through data, we're really looking at them as a way of understanding who those systems are built by and for, and what the data actually represents, who's included, who's excluded, and what that means. Sorry, and the third part of that was what that means in my research. Yeah. So I started off by working with popularity charts. Think of like the Billboard Country Airplay or Hot Country Songs chart. And charts are a representation of consumerism within the industry. Some charts are a representation of how often a song is played. So how much radio stations are supporting or not supporting a song. Or they're a representation of radio airplay plus something else. So plus streaming and plus sales. So this sort of balance of like industry decisions about whose songs are going to get supported versus the audience's intentions with what they're purchasing and what they're streaming. And so this is another form of big data. Some might call it small because, you know, charts are not that large. We're really only dealing with, depending on the chart, 50 or 60 positions a week over every week of a year. But those charts are tabulated based on many different forms of activity, activity, which is big. <laughs> so right, yeah. it's all the big data sort of that's behind that's driving up to this chart. What I'm interested in within that work on charts and later, which revolved around work on playlisting at country format radio and other formats increasingly, is the ways in which programming might privilege certain artists while disadvantaging others. And, and the biggest within country music is the combined sort of interlocking forces of racism and sexism. And so looking at representation of Black Indigenous artists of color, and then taking it even deeper intersectionally to then understand like what this means for white women, Black Indigenous women of color, and of course, queer artists as well. So really thinking about what programming practices at radio look like, how that impacts charts, and that how that then ripples through the industry to really determine the fate of artists within an industry that is fraught with all of the isms. Yep. Your article, Gender on the Billboard Hot Country Songs Chart in Popular Music and Society Journal, had such an influence on my current area of research and why I wanted to look at the data behind music conservatory programming and conservatory right. programming. At the time, I was like fresh to Ottawa. I had not met you. I didn't even know that you lived in Ottawa. And I was like, man, this article, this is so impactful. And then realizing, oh, not only 
only were you in the city that I was moving to, but you were also in the department that I was going to be studying in. So that was like a huge treat for me. And I I loved that article and I cite it so much. Can you explain why it mattered to measure the radio airplay of music by women, specifically women of color in country music? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. <laughs> it's really lovely to know that that article was so impactful. It was the first publication to come from this large research program. Forever holds a dear spot in my heart. I look back at it now and see all its flaws, which is, you know, natural research yeah. is a constantly evolving conversation with others and with ourselves. But that's that's really kind to know. Thank you. So why that? So taking, although I hate to do this, let's take the significant issue of racism and just put it to the side for a moment. The industry has grappled very publicly for a long time with representation of women mm -hmm. in the industry. And of course, when we say that, we do mean white women. This is an industry that has for a hundred years kept Black and Indigenous and other artists of color out. It's actually another kind of interesting moment for me was that I had deposited my dissertation with my committee for evaluation and a radio consultant who's based out of Texas did a very public interview where he said that women were the tomatoes of the country music salad. He started this often quoted passage by saying, you know, women should be pro should not be programmed back to back. Their songs should be limited within playlisting. And he said, you know, there are a lot of exceptional women, but if I look at the database in front of me, 19% of the songs are by women. And if you want to maintain your ratings, program women at 13 to 15% of your playlists. And this is a long held belief in the industry. Oh, and I should say, and then he goes on to say that women are the tomatoes in the country music salad. So the metaphor being play their music sparingly, the lettuce is male artists and, and the tomatoes are garnish. So this, of course, caused an immediate uproar. Female artists responded very quickly to it. Yeah. But I think for many, this was not just a point of insult and anger. It was also a moment of realization. I think most women knew there was a problem. Women had very clearly declined on the popularity charts. And there was clearly something going on because their songs were, were getting huge audience response, but not getting traction on radio, which is required to get access to the charts, which is required to get access to other things within the industry. And so this was like a very public moment. And there's been, we're still talking about it. Like every May, there's a you know, six years since Tomato Gate. These problems aren't new. And what what ended up happening through research by both journalists and scholars is you know, sort of going back in time and excavating all of the conversations about women and realizing, oh, this basic conversation has been happening for, you know, forever. You know, there's this very famous story about the Carter sisters back in the 1920s when A&R guys would go down to the South and start recording folks, you know, he said about the Carters, you know, a woman in the lead will never sell. Well, this kind of prejudice is built into the very foundation of the very first recording sessions of the industry and just hasn't changed. So women often appeared on the stage alongside brothers or husbands, but not as solo artists. Even as they started to take the stage more prominently, there was a sort of expectation of social conservatism and that women still appeared to be good and motherly and loyal. And because there were so always so few female artists, radio and labels have historically positioned this narrative as one of like, well, you have to spread out songs by women. There are so few songs by women that if you want variety, you have to spread them out like the tomatoes. But like, in actuality, those two things are feeding off each other, right? So yeah. 
if radio is not going to play songs by women, then labels aren't going to sign more women. And they've been pointing fingers at each other for decades and decades. And so this conversation has been long going, largely behind the scenes, outside of rooms where female artists are. are. And when women are in the room, they were historically told, well, you know, we already have our girl singer. We don't need any more female artists on our roster. And so those types of statements were always made, but it wasn't until Tomato Gate that this really a programming practice had been made public. And so this is a very long way to answer your question of why this is important. There had been no statistics to understand what had happened. So that first article looked at 1996 to 2016 and found, you know, decline from basically 1999 at a height of 33% of the chart down to 12% by 2016. I've since gone back further and found that like you could trace representation of white women in the industry along what I would call like an inverted U from 6.5% in 1958 up to a historic peak of 33% in 1999 and back down to 12%. Songs by women have never surpassed those by men. And of course, now that we take that pin off of discussing racism and understand that this is an industry that's founded on white supremacy, we can dig into the fact that like there are seven black female artists that have charted in the entire history of the industry. The highest charting black female artist is Linda Martell in 1969 with number 22 on the chart. Because of the sheer lack of representation of black indigenous women of color, the industry has never invested. And yeah. so the entire history of country music is something like 95.6% white songs, uh, songs by white artists. And so understanding them both together is understanding how they both get, they they are both maintained. Sexism will never be dismantled within the industry until white supremacy is first dismantled because it is actually the larger system that holds all other systems in place. Yeah. You articulating that in some of your future articles and in in that article as well was kind of what made me realize like, oh, we don't have statistics on female, BIPOC female musicians in piano curriculum. And it was like, if I go back further, if I go back further and, you know, I went back 50 years and 0.6% of women, two women of color were programmed. Sounds like country radio. It it sounds, (laughs) sounds like the same thing. And now I'm starting to see in 2022 more of a of a change and more publishing companies signing self-publish yeah. composers because there's been such a spotlight on it. It's like, why is this research groundbreaking? No. It shouldn't be groundbreaking. No, but we're living in a still a very white supremacist world. Yeah. So the more we talk about these issues, actually sometimes the deeper these issues become. People still cite the redlining and country music report, and I'm so grateful for it because the statistics haven't changed. It's still disturbingly inequitable. The response from the general audience is, shows you just how deeply entrenched racism with, is within that industry. When a, when a fan will write to me and say, oh, come on, they're just not interested. I'm like, well, hold the phone. <laughs> this is a music that was invented based on Black musical traditions and instrumentation. And you're going to sit here and tell me that like they don't want to participate? I mean, yeah. so these cultural spaces, which in we work, we really have to understand them within the broader social context that they unfold. And I'm very mindful and wary of any kind of add and stir fix approach. So I used to very naively advocate, well, just like program more songs by women. That's not actually going to change anything. Every time they just program more songs by women, they just go back to the status quo because they're not fixing the structures around them. That's where my work has started to take the shift is understanding that like, 
you can't just add the missing thing without changing the the structures in which they operate because you're just like going to perpetuate the problem because then you're going to have something to blame on those people. Oh, well, we added more songs by women, but they didn't succeed. So like clearly the audience doesn't want it, but actually like you're perpetuating your own problems. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's an article by Marcia Citrin that talks about the add and stir yeah. model yeah. versus the structural change model. And I also want to put in a plug for Reese Palmer's color me country yeah. uh, radio show which is she's just doing an amazing job of highlighting yeah. the incredible artists that are in country music so are you seeing similar correlations between radio airplay and success of an album on other charts like is there a difference between what people are listening to by choice versus what music is chosen for them so the interesting thing with that question it's a great question is it really sometimes is industry dependent. So within the country music industry, if we're thinking about representation, the charts often end up dictating what happens within digital spaces. It has been a fan base that has been slower to embrace streaming. They're always sort of talked about as like country hasn't quite embraced it yet. They're really getting there. They're getting to a point where artists are being signed off TikTok like everywhere else. But streaming is is just another big data tool. Spotify can curate all of the, and I'm using air quotes here, diversity playlists that they want, country Latino, black country, whatever their lists are. But it's not going to change the recommender system algorithm unless the industry changes. Streaming is always a representation of what's happening in the industry. On the one hand, yes, those editorial playlists play a big role. They are a way for... Black, Indigenous, Mexican-American, and Asian artists within country to gain some visibility and traction. And that certainly helps. Everything helps, especially in this world where there are multiple modes of access. If we're thinking about this sort of high-level, mainstream, really successful commercialisms, we're not there yet at least within country. And, you know, I'm hopeful that will change, but I think it will always be a fragmented Nashville and other. And, you know, every with every conversation I have with the, the folks that I've been so fortunate to get to know over the last few years, the general consensus for those who are really doing this kind of advocacy work on the ground still sort of feel the same. That like, yes, there's all these wonderful things happening with with playlisting, with artist collectives, with, you know, Apple Country Radio's phenomenal work that they're doing to spotlight women and BIPOC and queer and trans artists. But that hasn't yet worked within the mainstream. Labels are not signing these artists. So they're not getting radio airplay on mainstream radio. And so that means that they're not getting access to charts. They're not getting access to other opportunities. We're in a really tricky period. I I think it's too soon to tell if it will change. And if it does, like how soon I'll be straight up that I'm not confident that there will be change. Mm. I, I do not see it happening. They'll embrace white women before they'll embrace anyone else. Right. And they're not even doing that. Have you seen like since publishing some of your research, has it had an impact, like starting to see moments of change or not as much yet? Because the song data analysis that you put out was really eye opening. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, songs by women 
have increased. And again, white women, representation of white women on country format radio increased from that period low of what was it 8.9% in 2018 on the year end charts to like 13, 14%. But is that directly related to my research? No, I have no real uh, way of knowing whether or not anyone within radio is reading. I mean, part of me thinks there's no way they're they're not aware of it because mm-hmm. it has, thanks to the, the work of the Woman of Music Action Network with whom I collaborated on those reports, thanks to them, those stats really got out there. I'm not convinced that any change is in any way linked to it. With regards to representation of women in the industry, it has ebbed and flowed up and down like 5% over time. So we could just be in a moment of a little bit of an uptick. Whether or not that continues to rise is the question mark because the, you know, 60 or 70, 60 year average of charting is 20%. So, you know, we're not quite back to the average, (laughs) but I can say that there's 100% no change for Black Indigenous women of color within this space. Mickey Guyton is still not getting airplay despite all all of her her attention. (laughs) Yeah. She can sing the national anthem at the Super Bowl. She can sing on the Grammy stage, but she cannot get country radio airplay. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And if you have not listened to Mickey Guyton's most recent album, like I will link it in the show notes. It is one of my favorites. It's so good. So I'm curious, Jada, what do you have to say to people who might be skeptical of the lack of representation? Do you ever encounter the idea that you're looking for something that isn't there? Like people saying you're looking for something that isn't there. It's often something posed to me in my research, disappointingly, that the idea I'm looking for something that's not there. Do you get similar pushback? Yeah, of course. I think anytime that you are working to uncover inequities within any facet of our world, there's going to be pushback, especially spaces that are as white as the ones that we are researching. It's super awesome that sometimes it's put in print. So most (laughs) recently, my work was called Pernicious and Misguided. That was a joy. And so, yeah, I often get comments like, well, radio, you know, the industry plays the best music or like women aren't producing hits. And it's really like really tricky terminology, right? Because Mm -hmm. you don't record a hit. Somebody makes it a hit. For something to be a hit, somebody has to support it and push it onto radio and up the charts and into the streaming algorithm. These things are entirely manufactured, but it's always flipped as a very like, well, this is just a natural process. But there's all these other processes that happen (laughs) underneath the natural processes. So that's one that's common. You know, women, women aren't producing hits or... You know, there just aren't a lot of women active right now. And with regards to BIPOC artists, it's always, well, they're not interested. I hear that one too, which is just statistically not true. (laughs) Right. And I mean, I don't research representation within classical music, but I certainly have had some awkward conversations with folks about like, Oh, well, but you just have to understand this is how the Western classical system works. What was the most recent one? It was really interesting. Well, this is just the, this is the repertoire that we were, that we have to learn because this is how it is. And I'm like, but why is it like that? I think if you're looking at your repertoire list and it's entirely white composers, you should be questioning how it got that way. This is not just a natural selection process. This is carefully curated to be that way. And in the case of Western classical music, it's a longer history of careful curation. Yeah. Just country music is not as old. Absolutely. So let's say that there are people who are listening to this podcast and they are feeling frustrated with the lack of representation in what they're listening to in radio and in music. Like, what do we do? How do we move forward and start to address change 
in the gender trends that are prevalent? So I guess part of it is determining what your intentions are as a listener. Mm-hmm. If you want to change the world in which you live, because as a cis- cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied white woman, the world around me looks a lot like me unless I actively make a change to that. And I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in a monochromatic world. And so figuring out what it is that you are trying to do for yourself. And so for me, I do not want to be listening to what is produced and pushed out by a country radio. Not only is that music often quite boring, because it's all the same, but it doesn't reflect me as a human. And so I actively seek out other voices. Mm. So, you know, one thing you could try, but might not work, is phone your local, whatever format it is, radio station and request the song. I will be the first to say that it's unlikely to work. They are unlikely to take your requests. They are have very tight playlists and they often don't play anything unless it's on it. And you will get some kind of response to that effect that, that it's not part of their playlist. Radio also sometimes doesn't like when you tell them what to do. But using streaming intentionally and to your advantage, I'm as suspicious of recommender systems that are underpin all of these digital service providers from Spotify to maybe Apple to a lesser extent, but certainly to Pandora, because they are a reflection of what happens in the industry. So if you're going to hear certain things on the radio a hundred times, those are the songs that folks are going to go look for in a DSP. And those are the songs that are going to be pushed higher up within the algorithm. But creating your own playlists. One of my students did a project last year on fan curated playlists and actually found that fan curated playlists have a significant impact on the trajectory of independent artists. So building your own playlists and sharing it actually is a very powerful tool that we have in our toolkit. The other thing would be buying things. (laughs) So buying albums digitally or physical of artists that you want to support, buying their merch. I mean, with the industry being what it is today, still really struggling with coming back after pandemic, it's not going to be the white artists that are struggling right now. It's going to be, you know, the Black, Indigenous artists of color, the queer artists, the trans artists, the disabled artists who are going to be struggling because they're the ones who lost their livelihood more, more so than others during the pandemic. So supporting them in, in ways that you can so that they can come back. When you go stream an online show, give them a tip. Absolutely. Buying merch is big. Merch is often how they make their money. And if you go see them at a show, buy a drink at the bar. If you are of legal age. Yeah. (laughs) um, Because often musicians make a cut of bar sales. I think just being intentional with your decisions and with your money, but also just like curating spaces, sonic spaces around you that reflect your interests. Because if you're only going to radio or even to, you know, Spotify curated playlist, you're getting a very curated sense of an industry that doesn't necessarily reflect most people. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Those are all wonderful ideas. Your research project, Song Data, is really impactful for music research. Are you seeing more researchers use the methodology? Are you seeing it like inform and impact other areas of music outside of, of country? Maybe too soon. I'm also maybe right. too close to it. I do not track my citations, so I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I'm very pleased to know that it influenced your thesis. So there's one. And I know Annalie Leptizen, who's my um, doctoral student, her work has drawn on this methodology and brought it into contemporary worship music. And, you know, it, it takes time, this type of research, because it requires a different type of investigative digging to be able to clearly define 
humans based on ever-changing perceptions of identity. And so it's an investment of time. And so, you know, I think that if there are folks who are influenced who are going to be doing this kind of work, that I won't know for a few years because you can't just do it overnight. Not that you can do any project overnight, but you certainly... (laughs) You can't um, do research overnight. You can't do, yeah, you can't do any research overnight, but this, this one kind of relies on, you know, information that is often hard to find. Yeah. And long-term trends too. Yeah. As well. So what are you working on right now? What's getting you excited in your life? Sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. Yeah. This is a period where I have not been actively working on new projects. It's very weird. Uh, It's playing with my mind and making me think that I'm not doing anything. I have some chapters coming out that I'm very excited about. One on Mickey Guyton's song, What Are You Gonna Tell Her? I was so honored to be able to interview her and the songwriters. And so when that piece comes out, I'll be very happy. And um, my colleague, Paula Bishop, and I just completed editing a volume of essays for Cambridge University Press that comes out later this year. I think the publication day is like December 31st. That book coming out is going to feel like having my second child. It was such a beautiful team. And we're so fortunate to work with colleagues who we admire so deeply. And I'm very excited about that book. But because all of these things are like in copy editing phase or galleys phase, I I haven't really been doing anything new. Um, Add on top of that being, what, four months into a tenure track job. It's been wild. So I have a couple of projects that I want to be working on. I want to branch out of country. I love country, but it's one third of the story. (laughs) The entire popular music industry was fractured along um, Jim, Jim Crow segregation lines. And so I'm very interested in looking at the relationships between the three foundational charts to look at how segregation has been maintained for a century. But I'm also very invested in building up capacity to do research on the Canadian industry, which, you know, by virtue of being smaller, not geographically, of course, (laughs) but in terms of the size of the industry, it gets less attention. And so the focus ends up being on US systems. And as a result, like there's stuff going on here that that we need to address. And being in Ottawa puts me in close, you know, in proximity to like, conversations that are happening surrounding CanCon regulations and programming and changes within DSPs. And so I think that's another area that I want to start digging into more deeply than I have. I've done some case studies on country radio and French Canadian radio radio station, or sorry, French language station in Montreal. And both of those projects have been very eye-opening, but also I think are going to be paths to different, different conversations. Oh, that sounds so interesting. Well, it's been such a pleasure getting to chat with you. We're going to wrap up our chat with a few rapid fire questions, if that's okay. Of course. There are no wrong answers. Just go with your gut. Could you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a musician and in your case, a music researcher? I'd say music researcher more yeah. than musician. <laughs> I mean, I, I have not played piano since I quit piano in 2006. I can pinpoint the moment when I decided I wanted to be a musicologist. I was in third year of my diploma in piano performance. My piano teacher, Charlene Biggs, had this phenomenal record collection. And there was this record that sat on the outside that was sort of not cartoonish, but it was like a 
painting and I asked her about it. I finally got up the nerve to ask her about it. And it was Shostakovich's songs from Jewish folk poetry. And she told me the story behind the cycle and how, you know, it was composed in 1948. And, you know, he, he was not a Jewish composer, but he composed these Jewish folk songs, put them in the drawer because he was denounced at the time and his works were not being performed. And the song cycle was then premiered in 1955, two years after Stalin died. And it became this sort of prophetic song because it sort of, it seemingly predicted things that they were living. That was the moment. That was the moment when I realized I wanted to work on Soviet music, that I had some kind of interest in censorship and politics, Mm -hmm. and that I really wanted to be a historian. I love it. Do you have a favorite song to listen to? (laughs) Or a current favorite song? (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, can I swear? (laughs) Yeah. Go for it. I'm currently obsessed with I Love You Bitch by Lizzo. (laughs) Okay. That's right. This is the second or third time I think that Lizzo has come up on the podcast as a favorite. Oh, good. (laughs) That's great. Have you been given bad career advice? And what was it? Yes. I mean, but not from within my field. Right. I've certainly been told to, I mean, the academic equivalent of shut up and sing. But otherwise, no, I think that I've been very fortunate and largely because of the mentors that I've been very fortunate to have around me. That's good. What is some good musical or career advice you can pass on to up and coming musicians and music researchers? Remain open, flexible, and passionate. And I maybe I guess in the reverse order, if you're not passionate about what you're researching, it's going to feel like work. While I work long hours, none of what I do actually feels like work. And I know that I'm very privileged to say that because that's not true for everybody. But honing in on what it is that you are passionate about is really important. Yeah, that's great. What are you listening to right now? Oh, a lot of things. I'm still really stuck on Carly Pierce's 29, other than Lizzo, you know, of yeah. course. Um, <laughs> there's something about her album that really gets me. It's like 90s country. All of the things that I loved about women of the 90s seem to be encapsulated within this album. And I think it's been out for a year and I, I'm still listening to it. And because I, there are sort of two projects that I'm invested in, I, the other one I would say is Tammy Nielsen's Kingmaker. I was going to say, it's right behind you. It's also on the current rotation. (laughs) (laughs) It's also on my shirt. Not only is it sort of the most important messaging of an album, you know, front to back, it is advocacy in music. But Tammy is a dear friend. So it means sort of that much more because I know where these songs come from. They come from her heart. I also wrote her liner notes for the album. So it's Oh, that's that, awesome. I didn't yeah. know that. That's so great. Yeah. Another childhood dream. I I always wanted to write liner notes. And then she asked me and I was like, that's my childhood dream. Yeah. I didn't really know. She's writing the songs while we were writing the F word together. I can see all of the influences in a way that I don't see another because I'm so close to her and I'm so close to it. It's not just my album of the year. It's like my album of the century. I think that it's, I hope that it's going to open even more doors for her. When that album dropped, I was first of all, really pumped about it. And I remember that morning I needed to go, I was meeting up with someone about an hour walk away. And so I was like, I'm just going to listen to the album. So there and back, that's what I listened to. And I think Careless Woman is probably going to end up on my Spotify top song of the year. (laughs) Yes. I told her that it's mine. (laughs) I was like, that is my anthem. And it's funny when, because we, we met virtually at the start of pandemic, we, we started a book club via Zoom and that's how our friendship built. So we finally met in person this summer. She finally came over to Canada and 
when she performed at a, a set at Blues Fest, she dedicated the song to me. I was like, that's it. Nobody else can have it now. <laughs> I love that so much. And you mentioned the F word project. So I'll also link to that. Could you briefly just summarize what, what is that project? Yeah. So it was actually Tammy's idea. She envisioned a stage show that would be lecture concert. And the lecture was written by us, but a character named Dr. Jada Watson presents it. And it is a lecture about feminist anthems within the history of country music. And Tammy and her band play those songs as the speaker sort of talks about a song and then pauses the band plays it and there's some banter that goes back and forth premiered during the pandemic in New Zealand when they were open and we were closed (laughs) and our dream is to get it over to Canada that would be awesome yeah amazing well thank you so much for coming on loud and clear can you let our audience know where they can find you and hear about all the wonderful things you're doing sure I think you know one way is the website songdata.ca and if you're on twitter or instagram it's data underscore jada and I am on tiktok but do not actually do anything so that would be a boring follow awesome thank you so much jada you're welcome thank you so much for having me and that is a wrap on my interview with dr jada watson Thanks so much, Jada, for all of your research and the impact that it's making. I encourage everyone to go give Jada a follow on Instagram, on Twitter, and to check out some of her research and her articles. I will have links to all of that in the show notes. So thank you so much. And please tell Jada thank you for being on the show and let her know how much you enjoyed the episode. Speaking of hearing from you, I would love to hear from you if you are liking the episodes, what you want more of, what you want less of some people you'd love me to interview. My DMs are open at OA Music Studios on Instagram, and I look forward to hearing from you there. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows. And if you don't live in the Saskatoon area, you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website. I'm your host, Olivia Adams. This is Loud and Clear, and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.